0: Welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. Our guest today is Daniel Pryant. Daniel is an independent technical consultant, a product architect at Datawire, an InfoQ News Manager, InfoQ podcaster, and a conference speaker. What else? He also published a book on continuous delivery with Java. Today we will talk about API gateways and service meshes and how they open the door to application modernization. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you, Zen. Pleasure to be here gregor Hoppe, you know the the author uh, the book author and famous uh, um ex-googler and um, yeah. chief architect from from allianz the insurance yeah. he once tackled uh, the application modernization problem uh, with with infrastructure with, which kind of surprised me because for me Infrastructure, uh, application modernization was always about the modern, the, the code of the application itself. But what, what he said in, in a training was, you know, you if, if you have a, an old car and you make it nice, uh, but you still have like bumpy roads and muds and mud, you know, it just doesn't matter if, if your car is, if, if you have a race car or not, you know, a tractor is just fine. And he he... You know, I, I I thought this is a nice analogy, and you know when it comes to application modernization, and I'm I was just wondering, what's your take on on application modernization and infrastructure? Is it going
1: into a similar direction? It's an interesting one, Sven. And I think the key thing with all the stuff we do, and you and I have talked about this before, is remember the the value you're seeking. So, you know, it it very much depends on what you want to get out of these projects. Um, With that modernization, it can be many things. And I think I'm with you, it definitely impacts the application itself. um, But also, I totally get Gregor's ideas, as in, you can modernize an application only so far before the underlying hardware it runs on or the underlying infrastructure holds it back. So I think that the two things for me in my mind are really important. One is understanding what we want to get out of this app modernization. Why are we doing it? What value are we delivering to the business, to the customers, these kind of things. And then um what is the kind of current state we're at in the application? Is it the application code that's a problem? Is it the infrastructure that's a problem? Then once we've figured out what um, you know, the combination of priorities and what we need to change, then we kind of prioritize again, do we change the app first or the infrastructure? But I think they go very much hand in hand.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, but yeah,
0: in in your in your talk and your article uh, about about that topic, you also focused on on infrastructure. So what, yeah, what would I aim for when modernizing infrastructure? So what's the business problem? Uh, I, or the business problems I can solve with modernizing infrastructure.
1: Yeah, the typical business problem I see in relation to infrastructure is not being able to deliver value fast enough. So the customer says, you know, I want these things, the business recognizes how they can affect them, but then the infrastructure holds them back. Maybe they can only do deploys every two weeks, a month, every three months, six months even, because of the way the infrastructure is configured. Or maybe it's to do with the change fail rates. You know, the deploying on the infrastructure is really risky. So we want to limit the amount of times we, we deploy onto it. I think that's the the key angle from sort of a business driver. Um, There is also other things sometimes. Uh, Some people also, they, they want to decompose applications because developers are finding it too challenging to understand how to modify an app. And then they want to go to the, what we're now calling microservices. And a lot of existing infrastructures don't support microservices. So that's still connected to a value angle because the, the business wants to go faster, wants to make more changes. And the developers are really struggling because of the architecture, the software architecture. But the infrastructure is often a um, kind of key area that you, can, that you can leverage. If you can change the infrastructure to meet the requirements of the software architecture in the business, you're all good. Hmm. Yeah. But,
0: yeah. You mentioned the the change fail percentage and deployment mm. frequency. So those are two um, points from of two of the four key metrics from the Accelerate book. Yes. I yeah. I've and the book is what almost two years old, but I also think it's quite interesting that uh, businesses you know, only, let's say, half technical people really come now and say, or either they say, we want that, you know, we heard about the book, or you as a consultant, um, you know, you you can always show the book and say, you know, if if you do that, um, you will be better. So, yeah, I I fully agree that, uh, let's say, Having a higher deployment frequency is really difficult if you're in a very old-fashioned IT department.
1: Completely agree, Sven. Yeah, I've been there like back when I was working at a company called OpenGredo several years ago. We used to work with a number of big um, clients and they were doing fantastic stuff and there was very capable people there. But the, the decisions that were made in the past, I'm sure with good intentions, were, meant that infrastructure was built a certain way and that totally held us back. So we mm. often used to have to change the, the infrastructure, change the apps and also change the mindset. So there's a lot of challenges there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) I know those challenges. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. So let's say we, we were looking at um, at higher deployment frequency and uh, meantime to restore should be low. We want, uh, maybe we want microservices. Um, What, what do I need to do in terms of infrastructure modernization? So that's, I mean, I think you say you have to decouple infrastructure from the from the application. Um, what what do you what do you mean with decoupling infrastructure from applications?
1: Yeah, most of that is in relation to containers being the solution. But taking a step back and looking at the problem, what I found with people using, say, bare metal, or mainframe, or even VMs to some degree, is that the Application is often tightly coupled with the underlying infrastructure, either in that we're building apps to take advantage of certain properties of the infrastructure. So back when I was doing Java in my early days, and we were running on custom hardware sometimes to, to really, and we were coding to that custom hardware. So if we wanted to sort of lift and shift that app, it wouldn't really work that well. Mm. I've even seen this in a bunch of, um, for example, I'll uh, pick on Oracle, it's easy to pick on Oracle, but um, I was doing some stuff with databases and people were trying to lift and shift their Oracle databases into the cloud. But the way the Oracle database server is running, it was a very effective piece of software, but it was literally coded to run on Oracle racks. And there was expectations around um, timings, around you know, access to hardware, but when you move to the cloud, and not only is the, the underlying sort of infrastructure architecture different, but everything's going over the network. So suddenly the software was not behaving correctly because it, like the, we, the person who wrote the software at the time completely correctly made a bunch of assumptions about how they were running uh, on the hardware. So when I say decoupling, is you often have to change those assumptions, and that can sometimes mean a complete rewrite of an app. Like in the example, the extreme example of, of a database, you often code very close to the hardware. But most of us writing business apps, to be honest, it's more of a case of um, being able to deploy units of code uh, sort of in isolation, if you like. I've seen some folks that were literally sort of building big VM images and putting their applications on there. This was pretty much best practice five, six, maybe seven years ago. And Netflix with their famous uh, Aminator, I think it was called, where they used to bake um java apps into the amis on on uh, amazon and then they just deploy those whole amis whole vm images onto a vm and that does definitely give you more flexibility than the old you know coding to the actual hardware thing but it's still they're quite big these images and they are somewhat coupled to the vm format that you're you're running on be it vmware be it you know kmu these kind of things whereas um with containers you get even more flexibility or that's the sort of the the theory of why they were created why Docker became so popular.
0: Hmm. The
1: big thing for me with with decoupling is if you code your applications to not only fit in and be deployed within a container, but work well within a container, bearing in mind that most communication is going to be going over a network, your block store may be again going over a network, providing you code the application to respect those things and it fits nicely in a container, then you can run it pretty much anywhere you've got a container-aware Host. So you can run it locally, you can run it, say, um, on some bare metal services with with Docker or a daemon installed. You can run it on um, Kubernetes, you can run it on Mesos, you can kind of take your pick. So I really like this notion of, it's not really full sort of workload portability, but it's portability of deployment environments. Mm, yeah,
0: yeah, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, back in
0: the days, in the pre-Docker, let's say, era of... 2015 (laughs) yeah um yeah i thought you know it it's it's easy to deploy you know i'm also java guy and uh you know you just of course you have your your tomcat and but still you know you deploy a war file but yeah docker is a different uh, story you you also ship your your configuration for example so yeah i think that's yeah, that's really one of the reasons it has uh, so much success. Um, but now I I decouple, let's say, the deployment unit from the let's say the I don't know, execution platform. Um really? yep. So what what kinds of decoupling are available? So I think you you said something uh, like the you we can decouple from the compute fabric and we can decouple from the network so w- what what what's the compute fabric
1: yeah, this was based on some observations I made around how the big cloud vendors are recognizing that hybrid cloud is a really big thing. Like it's been hybrid cloud's been a thing for like many years, but Amazon in particular were very focused on, you know, move all your workloads to the cloud. Azure and Google took a slightly different tack. Now Amazon, like we've literally had reinvent a couple of weeks ago, Amazon are tacking towards this um, hybrid cloud is a, is a thing. But if you look at the way vendors are pitching it, they're pitching it very different. So they're all saying, you know, app modernization, you're going to be running some workloads in the cloud, you're probably going to be work- running some workloads on premises, but the way they want their customers to do it is very different. So if you look at Azure and Google, they are saying uh, Kubernetes is the common fabric. Uh, Google have got Anthos and Azure have got something called Arc now. And the idea being they they can they provide control planes that manage Kubernetes running on premises and also in the cloud. And you kind of get this homogenized experience of I can, you know, as an engineer, I can log in just to the Azure console or just to the Google console, and I can control the deployment of my apps and, and services um, by, uh, and it's actually running across Kubernetes across sort of the underlying, um, Fabric, if you like, the underlying hardware we, we don't really care about too much. Someone else configures, you know, Kubernetes running on their data center, on premises. Someone else configures um, it running in the cloud. And then, as an engineer, as a developer, I just access this by one one sort of control plane, one UI or one console. And then Kubernetes is very much the homogenized sort of fabric of compute, if you like. Whereas you look at other folks like Amazon, Amazon have got something called Outposts where you can install some of their hardware on-premises next to your existing code. But they're pitching that you connect the cloud, the classic Amazon cloud with this Outpost using something like a service mesh. So they've talked a lot about how uh, at reInvent, they talked a lot about how their App Mesh product, which is basically sort of their version of Envoy, uh, which is a popular network proxy. And they're pitching App Mesh as a service mesh that joins the existing Amazon cloud with your outpost, your on-premises stuff. And at DataWire, we're kind of talking about the same thing. We, we've done a lot of work with HashiCorp as well. And we're saying, if you deploy, say, an API gateway like Ambassador, which we have at DataWire, as a front door into Kubernetes, and you use something like Console, which can route across Kubernetes, VMs, existing kind of on-premises stuff, you can basically incrementally migrate from the cloud uh, sorry, from the on-premises to the cloud, or you can even run hybrid options. Sometimes it's, it's not worth migrating kind of things. So there's these two very distinct approaches to, um, to sort of modernizing the infrastructure. One is going the Kubernetes as a, as a fabric, as a compute fabric, and there's the other is kind of using network service mesh abstractions. Hmm. And they're almost offering different, the same goals, but at different layers of the stack.
0: Yeah, but why is that? I mean, when when I read Microsoft or here Microsoft and um and Google are going for for Kubernetes, I think okay, you know, Kubernetes comes out of Google and also one of the the key guys or the founders of Kubernetes moved now to Microsoft, so kind mm. of it's it's clear that they follow the strategy to to you know, have Kubernetes uh, everywhere, let's say, federated Kubernetes, I think, is the yes. is the product, right? Um, and AWS maybe not so active with uh, Kubernetes, following another another strategy. Th- is is this an, Would that be an an uh, an explanation, or what, what? What are there other, let's say, pros and cons to move from you know doing one or the other?
1: It's a great question, Sven, and I'll offer opinion here. I genuinely don't know, like I don't have much insight into Amazon. I know folks at Amazon, I know folks at Google and Azure as well. I think Amazon have always been a little bit hesitant around Kubernetes. They were, I think they were the last big public cloud to offer Kubernetes as a service. They pretty much had to because the customers uh, drove that request and Amazon are very customer focused. I also think they're somewhat wary of standardizing around one option. And if you look at Amazon sort of historically, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. They, they kind of offer you a smorgasbord of services. Now that can be confusing because there's many ways to deploy. There's EC2, there's EKS, there's ECS, there's, you know, Lambda, but, that's kind of how they work. It's a high volume, low margin type business. We give you, like, they give you all the tools and, and then we as engineers have to choose accordingly. So I think if you look at it from that angle, it, like, it's just Amazon doing their thing with a slight bias against one true platform, which in, in Kubernetes cases, you know, is what it is. I think, as you've already said, Google, it totally makes sense. Like the master plan has always been around Kubernetes. Like That totally makes sense. You look at um, Azure, I think with Brendan Burns joining and many of the other team are doing fantastic work there. Again, it kind of makes sense to centralize around this one platform. Even VMware, like Joe Bader and and Craig and and the rest of the Heptio team at VMware now, they're kind of doing the same thing as well. They're, They're betting on Kubernetes. I think it kind of makes sense, yeah, because we as engineers, we do like choice, but sometimes an opinionated platform helps us be productive really quickly. If you look at things like Heroku and Cloud Foundry, they actually had a lot of success because it removes a lot of choice. And we as engineers can just focus on <laughs> delivering business value. Yeah. So I think I think it's part like Google and Azure are almost skewing towards what Amazon are not doing with the goal of trying to make it easier for developers. And also the added bonus with using Kubernetes uh, as sort of the common substrate is that you do get a bit of um crossover between the platforms. Do you know I mean a bit of interoperability is the, is the theory. If you're looking at there's a new things popping out like the service mesh interface SMI. Mm. Uh, if you can kind of lift the abstractions up, I think Google and Azure are betting on those those abstractions being a thing and then it's going to be easier for customers to migrate or or um run hybrid situations between Amazon, uh, sorry, between Google and Azure, say. So I think that's where they're going for. Mhm. Yeah, uh
0: I'm also a bit, I'm also one of the people who, you know, has likes freedom, freedom from choice. Is that, that's how I say it? Yeah. <laughs> no, one thing is freedom of choice and the other one is freedom from choice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, AWS, we currently, uh, we, we are going to move to EKS, but we also run Fargate and uh, mm-hmm. Lambda. So all kinds of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's quite mixed. Yes. Um, but let's say I have this uh you know i i use e k s here i use fargate there i have lambda somewhere else H- how does it work with app mesh to let's say harmonize all those platforms or maybe maybe another question before you you mentioned a w s outposts um mm-hmm. w- what is it exactly uh so it's it's hardware you order were basically the Amazon Cloud software is installed on, on the on the hardware. Exactly, Sven. Okay.
1: Yeah, okay. So I definitely encourage listeners to pop along to the uh, Amazon site and, and the reInvent announcements around this. Like uh, Outpost has been around a while, but it went GA, uh, generally available at this um, reInvent. But the, the interesting thing with, say, Azure and GCP is you pretty much install software in your data center. Um, and they have some sort of different ways of abstracting it. Some is like VM image. Some it's just software you install on a Linux machine. But Amazon have gone very much like we deliver a rack to your okay. users, yeah and the beauty is like there's low latency because you can connect that rack into your actual system and so your on-premises existing stuff is very low latency connection into the amazon rack but it is someone else's hardware in your data center
0: okay okay but i also have something like eks on that hardware and uh
1: Yeah, you can't run everything on there. So that's definitely worth noting. Like They do offer a bunch of, like obviously, EC2 and things, and it just abstracts over the actual physical hardware that's now running in your data center. You use the Amazon standard control plane. You can't run every service on an outpost. And I can honestly remember off the top of my head which ones you can and cannot. So I definitely encourage listeners Mm, to pop along to the the Amazon website. I'm sure it will change over time as well. Okay, okay.
0: Yeah, I I think... You know, we let, let's talk about uh, decoupling the network. I had this question about App Mesh, but mm. I think we, I mean, we dive into service meshes and you know available products a bit later. So I just place my App Mesh question there. I think um, another thing you mentioned uh, in in your talk was uh, decoupling the network. Mm. So. Yes. What does this mean? And uh, why should I decouple the network?
1: Yeah, I talked about, again, in in context of sort of API gateways and and service meshes and so forth. And I think what you're referring to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sven, I was talking about this notion of you may have multiple subnets, multiple networks, even within a typical enterprise deployment. And often that's best practice in terms of security, you have DMZs and you have, you know, you've effectively your, your um, network. So if someone does break in or something goes wrong hmm. in the network, you, you limit the mass radius. So I was talking about that is a common pattern Traditionally, but often I see folks when they're deploying Kubernetes, they just have one massive Kubernetes cluster, one even one massive namespace sometimes, and they kind of forget about this notion of, of segmentation and so forth. Um, so what I was talking about is you can often use something like an API gateway and, a, and something like a service mesh to... And bridge the gaps between the networks. So your networks are decoupled, your, your networks, your subnets. You may even have something running in Kubernetes, something running in um, on-premise, something running in the cloud or whatever. But something like HashiCorp console, you can connect all those things up. So they are decoupled and you get all the good Practices associated with that in terms of security and, and, and um, resilience, but you do want to join them together, obviously, to, to deliver the customer experience, the, the application. So I was talking a lot about using. I've, I've got the most experience with with console, to be honest, but I know you know Istio is looking at this, Linkerd is looking at this, all the other service meshes are looking at this too, and there's many other sort of traditional technologies that look at in this space. But I think it's really important when you have decoupled your network and segmented applications, segmented services, to be able to join them all back together. And I was focusing on an example, I've I've got some code on online you can look at in my GitHub around using Ambassador, which is DataWise Open Source API gateway, in combination with HashiCore Console, which is now being sort of rebranded as a service mesh. I'm sure many of the listeners know and love console from service discovery and distributed key value store day but uh, days but these days we can actually use it as a, as a service mesh now so that was the main focus of my talk around that space in in the actual presentation at uh, at the conference
0: yeah yeah um having let's say one gigantic kubernetes uh, cluster or one even with one gigantic uh, namespace yeah i also think that's quite risky also it's you know, operating one big thing—it's better to have smaller units, and uh, within those, let's say, smaller clusters, and within those clusters, uh, multiple namespaces. Yeah, for security yeah. reasons, but also, yeah, we come later to it. If you if you introduce a service mesh, you know, it's—I think it's better to do it incrementally in a you know, namespace per namespace. But yeah, let's discuss that uh, later. Um, But once we have those, let's say, uh, um, different execution environments that could be Kubernetes namespaces, something on premise, I mean, that could also be the case or as we have it, we, we work on different platforms like uh, Kubernetes on EC two, uh, uh, AWS Lambda, um, Fargate, but it's it's basically you could see it at, as one application. And um, I think what what you're saying is harmonizing, you know, it, showing this application as one thing to the outside. We yes, could yes. use uh, an API gateway, right? So that's uh, that would be basically the the north south traffic management.
1: Perfectly said, Sven. Yeah, that's a big picture of what I've been talking about for sort of over a year now. If you look at an API gateway, it's kind of a classic facade type pattern. If we think back to our, you know, design patterns days, which I'm sure uh, from the Java space, you and I have done much work in that that area. Uh, API gateway is literally a facade that you can... You can mash together several backend services to have sort of one API that's exposed to end users, or you can expose them individually, whatever you like. But the API gateway provides that ability to choose how you expose these backend services. And, And it also provides things like location transparency. So in theory, you can move your backend services around, the user at the front end never knows. They just hit a URL, they hit an endpoint, that they're kind of happy um also an api gateway provides a bunch of other things like sh- security um rate limiting you know ddos protection like using a white web application firewall things like that um so it's it's a multifunction bit of kit an api gateway but it does definitely provide that location transparency and the ability to aggregate services at the back end
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i think you you also mentioned uh, the you know the a in your talk, uh, the API gateway, or it, it was an article, the, the identity crisis of an API gateway. So, oh,
1: yeah. you know, so many
0: things, an API gateway is doing. Yes. Um, yeah, for, you know, at my, at the company I work for, Innoq. We, you know, we see the danger that an API gateway is becoming the new uh, enterprise service bus with the <laughs> yes. too much. Um, l- let's say you have like an uh, horizontal monster in front of your application, but basically yeah. it should only be about, let's say, being a reverse proxy and offering API management.
1: I agree, Sven. If you look back, I did this uh, very popular talk a few years ago called The Seven Deadly Sins of Microservices. Uh, I, I talked about it for uh, sort of a year or two. It's like the people really want to hear about the bad things with microservices. And one of my deadly sins was exactly as you described. Uh, I said, like, um, you know, be very wary of an API gateway turning into an ESB. And not to click on Netflix, because Netflix are amazing. I've got massive respect for the Netflix team. But one anti-ban I did see in the Java space, a lot of people using Netflix's Zool, the original version, not the Netty version, the original version. Person about five years ago, I think it was released. And you could write dynamic groovy scripts and inject them into Zool. And Netflix had some really fantastic use cases for this. They could dynamically load scripts to, you know, uh, rate limit and route traffic and so forth. But I saw a lot of people abusing it by putting arbitrary business code into the gateway. So when you did a deployment, you had to look at the app, you had to look at like some integration stuff like Apache Camel or whatever. And you also had to look in the gateway now because it was business logic smushed into there as well so that was an absolute like complete anti-pattern of you know very highly coupled business logic into an api gateway so i've talked about this a bunch of times before and like i'm very conscious of all the product all the work i do at data Wire now we are actively saying to folks the api gateway provides a whole bunch of cross-cutting concerns developer portal all these good things security but please don't put business logic in your api (laughs) gateway
0: (laughs) yeah so the the best thing is just you know your your api gateway just doesn't allow to put any business logic somehow in it but i assume that's uh, tricky
1: yeah i think (laughs) it's almost impossible we have something called filters in ambassador and we had to put them in because customers basically were, were so keen to do it's not really business logic but they wanted to do some kind of you know Uh, security uh, analysis or some kind of special cases so they they, we need the ability to write arbitrary code but we basically say to folks be very careful about what you put in those filters use them only for cross-cutting concerns for security checks for doing special auth please 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 do not put business logic (laughs) in the filters
0: yeah yeah one can only hope (laughs) yes (laughs) but but when it comes to um yeah, to application modernization and API gateways. So, um, what would be a tactic to, let's say, separate? Um, or I, I, I rephrase. So I have a, I have a large, um, I have my large application, and I want to improve delivery. So I try to, let's say, rip out a candidate. Mm-hmm. From the application, put it on a container. Uh, have something you know lightweight. Maybe not really start with Kubernetes in the beginning, um, and put it on. I just you know just to have an example, put it on AWS Lambda or I mean Lambda doesn't support containers, but you know, let's say a container on Fargate or my my function on Lambda, mm-hmm. and then I put an API gateway in front. Of the yep. application, and I just say, okay, all my clients now talk to uh, the the API gateway, and one part goes through, you know, to the old application, and the other one and to the new application. So basically, a very simple um, a reverse proxy functionality. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, then from there, basically, when we have that, we can grow from there, right? So. Uh,
1: Yes, and what you talked about there is the classic uh, strangler pattern, probably a horrible name, but it's kind of, Caught on. Martin Fowler's talked a lot about this on his blog. Yeah. It's a fantastic book, actually um, Monolith to Microservices. It's Sam Newman's second book. I'm sure okay. many of you know Sam Newman's microservices book, but it's just published. Funny if I I've met Sam actually in Berlin when I was in Berlin recently, and he gave me a copy of, uh, of the book. Fantastic book. And he talks a lot about the strangler pattern and related tactics. So I thoroughly encourage listeners oh, to, okay. you know, if they haven't got Sam's original book, still worth buying that one. But he's updated a lot of his thinking and a lot of his learning from all the consultancy work and all the training he's done and sam's just a generally like deep thinker in this space as well yeah. he's got like the combination of his book and say martin fowler's and work it's it's really nice as a As a sort of conceptual pattern. And then, where people like me and other folks sort of build on this, is we give you perhaps more practical related advice. There's benefits in both here, the theory and the practice. I often do use Kubernetes as my example. So, even if you're pulling out one service and if you know you're going to go to Kubernetes, sometimes it is good just to spin up a Kubernetes cluster. And even if you're running only one or two services on it, you're getting experience of running it pre production, you're getting experience of running it in production ultimately before you start increasing the load. Does that make hmm. sense? You sort of. I, I think the key thing with all this app modernization is is the learning. Like you, we've got so much choice these days. Things are fundamentally changing. Like the way you run uh, VMware or, or VMs versus the way you run Kubernetes is quite different. So the ops team, the platform team, have to do quite a bit of learning there. And it's all totally doable. But I really encourage people to do it incrementally. So mm-hmm. I, I love the pattern you mentioned. Take out one service bundle it in a container, put it on Kubernetes, run it in production for a while, because you get a feel for how Kubernetes runs. You get a feel for how you're gonna monitor the app in Kubernetes. You start building a a good pipeline around getting your apps into containers, into Kubernetes and so forth. And then as you get more and more confident, then you can expand this out more and more. And then you can start putting the, the, the classic kind of strangler pattern. You can start pulling more and more bits of your monolith out, putting them in containers and running them in Kubernetes. Now, you may never get rid of the original application completely, that's totally fine. I think Twitter, when they were doing their rewrite and um, were running their um, monorail, as they called it, their classic classic monolith uh, rails app, they were running it for many years, but they had most, most of their traffic going through microservices but it was just not cost effective to take out the final bits of this monolith.
0: So they, so they kind of <laughs> left
1: it hanging around. And many customers, that I've worked with many folks at while we, I've worked with in this space, like some of them put the monolith in a box, as we say, some of them put the monolith in a container, some of them don't bother, and they just like to route the traffic, as you said, between the monolith, and most of the traffic when you've made good progress is going to the Kubernetes cluster and is going to your new microservices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, to- if if you talk about uh, Sam Newman and his new book, so actually, you know, we 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 had an, uh, a podcast with Sam. I don't know a year ago, and he he basically said, okay, there will be the new book, and we already agreed to do a podcast on the new book. So awesome. thank Thanks for reminding. I have to catch <laughs> up with him. Um, yeah, I also, you know, I fully agree. Um, I think three years ago. We were at a bank, and they had like a large, very specific, monolithic, let's say, enterprise service bus, for yeah. you know to <laughs> um, to to ha- uh, to let the service bus talk to all the core banking systems. Yes, and we uh, we we decided that we basically use the application strangulation pattern. So we built we we just left the let's say the whole integration architecture as it is. Mm -hmm. just installed at that time it was um docker swarm Mm -hmm. i mean we decided to take docker swarm because it's you know let's say it's it was easier at the time than kubernetes and to to now we would probably also use a kubernetes um but yeah just start with one let's say with one dump endpoint uh, sorry dump pipe smart endpoint that was the was the idea and Yeah, we we are visiting those guys again, I think, in January or February. And so far, I never heard anything uh, negative uh, as a feedback, because I think the nice thing is that you are not so much under time pressure. You know, you're not chasing a date where you completely rewrite your whole system. You always have a working system and everything which is new, is then running on the new platform and everything you have to change and it's tricky to change you also you know you d- don't change it you just rewrite it to the new platform and it's very easy to you know to to add new or update uh, functionality on the new platform yeah. so yeah i i really like the application strangulation pattern the only downside we experienced was uh, obviously it takes a lot of time to, let's say, build the infrastructure to make everything that you know, let's say, that the developer experience with using the using the new infrastructure and you know the new the the, the strangulation pattern. Uh, it it takes time, and then people really got nervous <laughs> <laughs> that we are working always on architecture and infrastructure, and there is no business logic. So that was a bit tricky, <laughs> I think, but.
1: It's a constant balancing act, it's so I've worked on some projects where, yeah, same as you mentioned, the developer experience is super, super important, and I, I've, if uh, listeners are interested, I, I did a write-up of um, Shopify's experience. If they pop along to InfoQ and, and search for um, Shopify Nico Kirti uh, I learned a lot from Nico about how they took the Heroku experience, which their developers were used to, and actually built a Kubernetes platform with a Heroku-like experience. And like Nico, Nico and his team purposely listened to the developers, listened to what they they want the developer experience was super important to the whole team to be able to go fast and they basically put this facade over kubernetes to allow them to use the same developer experience so i thought that was a very interesting way of minimizing that pain because it did take a while to build out the platform but ultimately the developer experience was a very easy shift from heroku to kubernetes because they put this layer of abstraction in okay
0: okay yeah i will uh, link it in the show notes nice um Yeah, talking, so I think API gateways, it's kind of clear, you know, it's, let's assume for now it's a reverse proxy with uh, API management capabilities. Um, So we also, we we have an API gateway, but not as we described it here. But now we, we, in, in my current project, we really think about, you know, how can we, you know, harmonize all the application with one common API gateway? right um yeah. what um how can i say that how uh, what are the properties i should look at to make a, a product decision
1: yeah great question Ted. so i'm still learning this as well if i'm honest excuse you one second um there's a bunch of things, you know, that are sort of business or, or developer specific to, to your organization, if you like, certain sort of properties you're looking for. But there is some key things in terms of the ability to route traffic dynamically, the ability to secure endpoints, and the ability to um, do things like rate limiting, and then the ability to, say, offer the API documentation to, to end users using something like Swagger or, or whatever. So there's a bunch of sort of standard things that you can sort of look at in an API gateway, but it's actually quite a fast moving space now because the underlying fabric that a lot of gateways are being deployed onto, Kubernetes and, and the associated change in architectures like microservices are actually creating new use cases. So if you look at a lot of classic API gateways, they were built with the assumption that you're kind of running monoliths in, in the back end, or at least big services in the back end. So that is somewhat changing the requirements now. You know, you definitely want the ability to, I think, say in a modern API gateway, the ability to route across multiple backends, be they Kubernetes, be they VMs, be they um, Lambda, as you mentioned, is, is a good example. So that's that's sort of the broad brushstrokes, I think, of what I look for in, a, in an API gateway. But it is, it's something that we're actively working on at DataWire, to be honest, because a lot of our customers say, how do we compare you know, Ambassador with Kong or other ones? And we've got sort of the standard answers that I've just mentioned in terms of basic functionality. But when we actually scratch the surface of individual Customers, individual use cases, often lots of interesting requirements pop up. And it's things because anyone who's worked in enterprise for many years has often got many layers of infrastructure, many layers of apps, as you've already alluded to in our conversation earlier. And because you've got this, you've often got certain requirements around, you know, well, my existing API gateway does this. And it's something I've never heard of. <laughs> and I'm like, why, why does it do that? But because it's a custom API gateway, they built it. meet their requirements they built it to you know do exactly what they want so that often plays a big part in in discussions we have to say to customers ah hang on that functionality i totally get why you did it but really it shouldn't belong in the gateway we need to move this into an integration layer or we need to move that responsibility into the services themselves Hmm. so it's often It seems simple on the face of it. And hopefully my answer around sort of the the basic things to look for is useful to folks. But I've actually discovered as we've done more and more work at DataWire, the the list of requirements is actually much deeper than I thought it was. So as we speak, we're literally putting together some docs on how to help folks on understanding the problems an API gateway solves and and how some of the solutions map to the existing problems and requirements they have. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Also, we 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 haven't talked about cost. I think that's also uh, yes. One thing which I find uh, quite interesting when you look at uh, costs of certain solutions, but agreed. But, yeah. Yes. But the the w- what you you are working on is will it be public uh, uh, soon or is, like the you know how do I select. I mean, I assume you are
1: quite biased <laughs> with yeah. uh, with that. But, no, of uh, course not. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you're saying. So we are doing a lot of documentation, a lot of sort of uh, articles in this space at Datawire. So yeah, it's totally planned to be public. We're doing a lot of articles, uh, helping people understand the problem space uh, and helping people understand solutions and so forth. So I'm hoping, given a month or two, we've got lots of interesting stuff coming out now. We've just launched a new product, actually, the Ambassador Edge Stack. So our big focus is on that sort of, uh, and the run up to the holidays, and probably a little bit afterwards as well. But I'm definitely keen. After you and I chatted in, in Berlin, I'm, I'm definitely really keen to share some of my ideas around, or some of our ideas, I guess, around the um the criteria for a, evaluating a gateway. Because I think it'll be a conversation. I think it will put some stuff out there, and then you and other folks will go, "Hang on, have you thought about this?" Or "I don't agree with this." Or "What do you mean by this?" Mm-hmm. And I think it'll take a few iterations. Because uh, you've already mentioned Christian Poster's article and some of the other stuff I've done. I think. Between all of us, we've realised that the API gateway space, um, you know, there's a critical core bit of functionality, but it's actually a really important part of. Of, of a system, of an application, because all your traffic goes through this gateway, so it's on the critical path for every request. So it is really important to understand um, a bunch of things. You already mentioned cost. Obviously, we get a lot of inquiries about support at DataWire. So people say, you know, if something goes wrong, we need to be able to call you and need to be able to email you and fix it. So support is one of those things that you, if you go an open source solution, it's very easy to forget about, kind of. the the total cost of ownership if you like very so very easy to forget about you know i need to have engineers on call for the gateway and for the mesh and and these kind of things anything goes through the critical path has actually got a lot of requirements associated with it
0: yeah yeah when you say it's the critical path uh, all the requests go through the api gateway um yeah I, i worked once with let's say a classic product and that was really that was a disaster because uh, in terms of traffic, because this thing went down every <laughs> once in a while, and yeah, then the whole application is down. And of course, yes. there was a big anti-pattern: one API gateway for all applications. You know, it doesn't matter um, how lo- in totally distinct applications. You know. You, so we yeah. we could have several API gateways, but yeah, when it was down, every application was down. That was really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So the stability, non-functional properties, you have to good to to understand them. Yeah.
1: Completely agree, and uh, with a lot of technology changing, so a lot of the more modern gateways like Ambassador and others are built on Envoy, Envoy proxy, and that is a fantastic bit of technology. It came out of Lyft, uh, like a sort of the. A, a U.S. version of Uber, if you like, or a U.S. competitor to things like Uber. It's a, a travel service. Um, and they have battle-tested it at Lyft. as many other companies. All the big clouds are using Envoy, for example. So I'm really confident of the abilities of Envoy. And we've hardly had any sort of you know issues with it over the, over the time we've been working on it at DataWire. But it is new technology. So a lot of people that are sort of embracing these newer modern gateways have to do a bit of learning of how does, say, Envoy differ from HAProxy? Or how does Envoy differ from Nginx, for example? Those are the kind of two classic reverse proxies you often see in deployments, and the ops team have just got to learn how to read different logs. They've got to learn how to monitor the things differently. So that's one of the things that can cause a bit of disruption when you're adopting these modern um, gateways, too.
0: Yeah, Envoy, it, to me, it seems it's everywhere now. Um, you know, I think Istio or Linkerd, the two ter-
1: service meshes, they basically are based on Envoy, right? Uh, so istio yes based on uh, envoy but um, linkerd is not linkerd uses a, a custom rust proxy oh, okay, uh, so okay. they made a conscious choice as in whereas Console uh, with the hashicorp service mesh that also uses envoy too but the uh, the i think the old ones out are definitely linkerd and i think it's um uh, Mash- uh, mesh sorry which is um trafix mesh i think they wrote mesh in go so the the, the linkerd and the mesh are the two Uh, service meshes that don't use Envoy. All the other meshes pretty much use Envoy.
0: What's so special on Envoy? I mean, I think I once read a very nice article comparing Envoy with all the other ones. Mm. And uh, I think the main reason was, if I remember correctly, observability of Envoy is really easy. And that was the you know all the other ones HA proxy, Engine X. They also have a broad user base, um, you know, battle proof. Yes. But yeah. observability is it's it's just a built-in property of um,
1: of Envoy. Yeah. My boss actually, Richard Lee wrote a nice blog post on the ambassador blog around this. So you may have even read his work. So he maybe, did maybe. Sort of Envoy versus Nginx and so forth. So definitely point listeners to that one. But the one thing I say is, is to be honest, like I've used Nginx for many years. I'm sure you have. I'm sure many of the listeners have. Fantastic bit of kit. I've used HAProxy for many years too. The big difference in my mind, and they are fantastic pieces of technology, but they were born pre-cloud. So Envoy is probably the first proxy that was was born, created, and the ideas going into it were formed after the cloud revolution, sort of 2006, roughly when Amazon sort of made, made the big announcement. So Matt Klein, who is the creator of Envoy and now still works at Lyft, Matt had worked at Twitter on networking, he'd worked at Amazon on networking, and he worked at a bunch of other places as well. So he'd been at the front lines, seeing all these networking challenges, seeing all these kind of, you know, proxies, how they worked, how they failed, how you could observe them and not. And he and his team at Lyft kind of created Envoy with all this non knowledge baked in. All the existing, almost strengths of the classic proxies where they might be weaknesses in a cloud environment where the fabric's different, things are more ephemeral, there's higher latency potentially in connections, all the kind of classic cloud issues, Matt baked all that into Envoy. And observability, for example, was a key part of that. So from the big distinction in my mind is, it's a constant trade-off, and I have some very interesting discussions with folks of, yes, Nginx, HAProxy, and the classic proxies are more battle-tested, you can't argue with that, they've been around for longer. But Envoy was born in a cloud era, and if you're running in the cloud, it's, I think with a bit of analysis, it's probably easy to argue that Envoy is more appropriate given the requirements and the challenges of cloud. Um, so I think that's a key thing people need to need to think about it. But I totally agree with you. Things like observability and reliability are really important for a proxy. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that's the only problem we have with Engine X. It it implements Open Tracing, but somehow, you know, it it you have to move to the paid version. Um, yeah. And then you still have, we, we had some troubles uh, making it to work, but basically I have to say now with a paid version, it also works uh, quite nice. Um, but okay. Yeah, I, I also have the feeling, yeah, Envoy is the new kid on the block and <laughs> it's, yeah, it it makes a big difference if, if uh, you know, something is is made for. What, whatever you, you need, right? It, it doesn't only meet, need uh, mean made for the cloud, but I think like Jenkins, it's also a nice example. Jenkins was quite nice, um, w- w- was the, the number one CI server. Mm. But now it also feels like not the right choice anymore. And of course, they can do a lot of things, but it's just not, you know, it, you, you build all those new capabilities in, after the new world of containers and cloud native comes along, and that it just feels a bit strange. And maybe it's the same with
1: Envoy. Yeah, I think a couple of things worth mentioning with, with Envoy is Matt Klein, the creator, deliberately chose not to build a business around it because he feared sort of the business drivers would interfere with how the product was developed. And he wrote a fascinating blog post several years ago. It's still on his blog. So you go to Matt's blog, you can see his thought process around why he wasn't creating a, a company. Apparently, VCs were kind of throwing money at him saying, we'd love you to create a company. Perfect. They saw the potential for it. But he was like, no, I don't want to. Don't want it for various reasons. Um, it's really interesting. Sort of understanding Matt's reasoning and given the hindsight of time now we can look back and see that Matt was actually very wise and not only did he not create these kind of Perverse incentives of you know maximizing profit over creating a good product, but it's also encouraged a whole bunch of other folks to work on the product. So Envoy now is you know the main contributors come from uh, Lyft of course, from Google, from IBM, Amazon are contributing, Azure are contributing. There's many many other companies I've missed out a bunch, but I do think having all these people come together, people that would probably not collaborate on you know on anything else that's not open source and open governed, makes a better product. Yes, I think Matt was very wise in that he saw the potential for Envoy, but realized that commercializing it could h- sort of halt it in some ways. So mm-hmm. now the fact that all these companies are bringing their expertise, they're not putting all their expertise in Nginx because that's largely a proprietary system. I know it's an open source code base, but the Nginx Plus is kind of a proprietary sort of uh, wrapper on the open core. And um, I think that, that that is one reason why I see even if Envoy doesn't meet someone's requirements now, it's still an interesting investment to look into because... I think Envoy's got the the best trajectory. If you look at all mm. the community engagement, the incentives around it, just the kind of, yeah, a whole bunch of reasons. I think Envoy is, is on the up, basically.
0: Yeah, also my feeling, but it's just a feeling. But yeah, I think I will uh, check uh, Matt's uh, blog post and I will also put it in the show notes. I think it's an interesting discussion about uh, Envoy and see how it, you know, uh, how this will end in the future?
1: Yeah, and I think will- a lot of the roles that you and I and people like us take, you're making technical bets. Yeah, so you know you're betting on, you're putting something in a stack, and you're betting that it's good for the future. And I, I, as I've kind of moved up through like different roles in my career, I realised that having the ability to Examine the current state of the world, make predictions, and then justify them in a very sort of structured way is actually a really core skill. You've got to look not only at the code, but you've got to look at the politics, you've got to look at the organisation, you've got to look at the general industry trends, and then make an informed decision as to what you're going to base your stack on.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's uh, yeah, looking at the technology is um, is only one small thing. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, wh- what are what are challenges with an API gateway? You know what? What I mean. We we already had a few. Uh, you know you can make a you can put business logic into it if you <laughs> if you uh, yeah. if you behave not correctly. But are there any other challenges with using an API gateway? I mean, if I make this. Let's say this bet, or uh, if if I if I decide to use an API gateway, um, are there any other things I should particularly look
1: at? Yeah, coming back to the earlier point around requirements, I definitely think it's worth folks doing uh, analysis upfront as what they expect from their gateway. In addition to the standard things we mentioned, so that the, the things that maybe we just assume as in our organization are. Uh, are, are standard in API gateways because our API, gate support, our API gateway supports them. It may not be the case for other API gateways. So the, the and the and the classics um, challenges we see, say at Datawire, is people sort of choosing an API gateway, not realizing that they're moving to microservices at the same time. It's often bunch, you know, folks are adopting a bunch of things like microservices, Kubernetes, these kind of things. With microservices, you've got many more things being exposed at the edge. So you're managing sort of APIs associated with these new microservices at the edge. And rather, a one monolith was quite easy to manage. And the gateway kind of, you could configure the gateway with some, say, hard-coded stuff. But if you're deploying, say, hundreds of microservices, like some of our customers at DataWire literally have hundreds of cust- uh, hundreds of services at the edge, you can't get away with hard coding that into the gateway. For example, you need some kind of dynamic mechanism of service discovery and these kind of things. And the second thing that we see quite a lot is the ability to have sort of a comprehensive configuration. So not only have you got more things at the edge, but quite often the services are different compared to each other. So one service exposes REST uh, API, one service exposes WebSockets, we've got GRPC web, there's a bunch of different protocols these services can support. So you need to make sure when you, you're looking at a gateway, do recognize what protocols you need to support. The classic in the enterprise space is SOAP. Folks say to us, we're, we're moving to REST, we're moving to you know, um, GRPC, but we've got this SOAP stuff because hey, you know, yeah, of it, it is what it is. Yeah, and SOAP's very different to REST. So you need to make sure that the gateway supports the old world and the new.
0: Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. it's uh, you, you tend to forget it. <laughs> or I <laughs> tend to forget <laughs> <Yeah>. this soaps <laughs> affair. All right. Okay. Let, so let's change gears a little bit, going to uh, service meshes, uh, definitely, at least in my bubble, the hottest topic for the last maybe two or three years. I think the, the interesting thing uh, with uh, service meshes for me is it seems that people can actually use it right now. So in, in, the, in the interview I did with uh, Sam Newman a year ago, I said, mm-hmm. "Ah, Sam, um, I recently visited uh, a training on Istio. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, ah, you know, it's not quite ready, but just wait another six months and then you can use it. And then Sam was like, ah, you know, they keep saying this for three years now. Um, so, and also, I think once uh, 1.0 came out, there was an interview with Eric Pruer, VP infrastructure at yes, Google, and, and uh, also the, the Cap Theorem guy. Yeah. And you know, the interesting question was, would is Istio ready for production? And this is, that was maybe March yeah. 2019. I will also put this interview in the show notes. And he was like, Yeah, you know, it's 1.0, you know, this means it's production ready, but, uh, you know. <laughs> so he, the thing is, what, what I found interesting, he was really, really positive, you know, he, it, it, it seemed that or basically he made it very explicitly that open sourcing is building an open sourcing issue at google was not very it was not an easy thing to get you know the approval to do that and but you know he is he was really positive about the idea uh, and but you know still you know it's new technology be careful um, so that the, m- I was always very hesitant to use a service mesh because, yeah, all it, I I hear uh, people like Sam Newman or even Eric Pruer saying you have to be very careful. So now, but now we we will introduce a service mesh uh, in the next uh, in the next six months, I assume. Mm-hmm. So a- actually, it's on the, it's on the roadmap, and you know. Let's discuss the the migration ideas uh, in in a couple of minutes, but uh, b- b- before that um, maybe just set the the baseline so what what is a service mesh?
1: yeah, so a service mesh is a piece of technology. It's almost an abstraction layer over the application level communications. so typically, It's probably easy to describe how a mesh is implemented. So within each service of our system, in each application, if you like, you um, have a sidecar system typically, or some way of that application joining the mesh, if you like. And the classic way at the moment is in containers, you have a sidecar container, something like Envoy, that um, all the communication from each service going to another service, goes via these proxies these sidecar proxies so you don't have you know app A talking to app B you have app A talking to Proxy A and proxy A talks to proxy B, and then proxy B talks to application B. So you have this kind of abstraction mesh, if you like, across all the communication of your applications. And it's not just applications, it can even be, of course, API gateway, it can be things like data stores, these kind of things. But the fundamental difference is you put this layer of abstraction above sort of the applications, if you like. That, or maybe probably best to say actually below the applications, so that all communication is now going through this common mesh, this common fabric, and that gives you the ability to observe. In a standard way, whether you're service A or, or and service B, whether they're written in both in Java or whether one's written in Java, one's written in Ruby, doesn't matter from an observability point of view now because you're wiring into these proxies, you're wiring into the mesh. So it gives you a common way to observe you know, 503s being returned on HTTP, gives you a common way to understand latency, these kind of things. It also gives you security. So now, because again, you're not baking security into the individual services, you can bake security into these proxies, providing the app can securely talk to a proxy. The proxy can then do things like uh, TLS, transport level security. It can do things like auth, it can make policy decisions. There's a very interesting um, framework called the open policy agent that's popping up now at the moment. It kind of gives you almost like a role-based access control of service A talking to B, but perhaps not talking to C or not being able to talk to C these kind of things. And finally, it also gives you the ability to do a reliability. So many of us in the Java space have used things like Hystrix from Netflix, which is a circuit breaker. We've also used retries and bulkheads timeouts but we used to bake that into our application language. Histrix in Java case, Ruby's got something similar, Go's got something similar, but all the implementations of it were often different. Whereas now again, because we're using this common abstraction layer, we can do kind of network level as uh, circuit breaking and retries, but in a standardised way, because it, because it's kind of outside of the actual application, you can do a, do it in a standardised way. It's not quite the same as doing it in the app. You you got to be careful. We're in some sort of business logic, particularly with retries. You don't want to retry certain transactions out of process because you get a bunch of disasters happening. But that that the kind of mesh offers those three things: observability, security, and reliability. And it really is a fundamental um, abstraction layer of a communication.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um... When you talk about uh, sidecars, uh, that would, in, in the Kubernetes world, this would mean my service is on a pod and the sidecar, so the Envoy proxy is on the same pod. Exactly,
1: Sven. It run like it's a separate container. A lot of the, um, like, so I've used console quite a bit of late, but console will even bootstrap a, uh, a Envoy sidecar pre configured. Uh, for you so you deploy your application i think istio does actually something very similar with webhooks and you can just specify i want this to be envoy enabled or istio enabled or console enabled and then it will wire in another container a sidecar container into your pod that sits alongside your existing uh, application containers
0: Mm. yeah i i mean because a service mesh basically spans the whole application, or makes, let's say, a, a, la- a mesh across the the application. I, I I used to be very scared, but I have to say, we built a lot of those things uh, by ourselves. You know, we we had our own authentic, or we still have our own authentication proxy, which is a sidecar on a pod. Uh, we do MTLS communication between the services, you know, service by service stuff like that. Yeah. I think also uh, you, you called about observability, like the whole distributed tracing. Of course, we also have a solution for that, mm-hmm. you know. And so on. C- circuit breaker, I think, is quite an interesting uh, or resilience in general, but circuit breakers uh, uh, in, in a special case. I found that quite interesting because I'm a Java guy or a JVM guy. And I always thought, you know, circuit breaker. Okay, you just take Hystrix and that's it. And uh, but then, you know, we have Node.js people and there is just or at least they said there is just no such thing than uh, Hystrix, Node.js. So it's yeah, it it really helps to, you know, have this uh, platform independent. Also, canary testing is something we have on our list for service mesh. So mm. I'm not sure if you, you didn't mention it, right? But um,
1: Yeah, no, great, um, great points, Sven. So I almost it's sort of like fundamentals, I forget about it sometimes, but the traffic shaping and traffic splitting is a fundamental property of API gateways and service mesh and the ability to kind of split traffic. So 1% of users go to a new service is a great way to canary test the service. One thing I would advise, and again, I am probably biased with my work at Dataware here, but I say start at the edge and work your way in. So we've had some customers that have tried to do, say, canarying with Istio and got a bit confused because you can put canaries on an arbitrary Point in the stack, but then when you're debugging and so forth, you have got to remember when the the request is flowing down through the service, did it get canaried? Did it get canaryed in two services? Where did it get canaried? And we often say to folks, canary at the edge, and it's really obvious then. Yeah, so you know, you maybe you're um, say one percent of your traffic goes to this sort of new service or or gets a property uh, injected into the header, and then that goes down through the stack. But it's very easy when you're doing lots of canarying at arbitrary points to get confused. If you look at some of the, in my experience at least, when you look at some of the big companies that are doing it at scale at success like Twitter and others, they've got a whole lot of machinery that supports this. They've written you know, deliberate tools to understand where the request flowed, where it branched. They can link these things up. They do machine learning based on the um, responses going back. So obviously it's so bigger scale at twitter you can't look at it you have to have machines understand these things so there's a lot of caveats with this thing i, I often say to folks be really clear about the requirement you have for canarying as sometimes you can find it's, it's easier to do with feature flags for example and quite often you can pull the requirement closer to the edge and and just be conscious all the time that if you are doing these kind of um, traffic splitting things they are very powerful and, and they they actually are game-changing, to to use an overused phrase, but they really are game-changing if you get it done right in terms of continuous delivery and progressive delivery. But with great power comes great responsibility, as the old cliche goes. I've definitely seen folks get a bit uh, overwhelmed with the cool stuff they can do with the service mesh, being honest. Hmm. I mean, Canaries,
0: you know, we also, we look at the the accelerated metrics, and of course we want... um, a low a change failure rate. Yes. And back in the days, uh, like five years ago, um, we we did canary testing. And but it was it was at the edge, so the reverse proxy just looked at some property uh, in you know in a cookie, <laughs> and then decided okay let's go to this version or the other version. It was quite you know on on EC2 and everything very static. It was let's say quote unquote easy yeah. to do canary testing but i i also found this very helpful you know you i'm much more I, at that time i was really relaxed to do a deployment because if the deployment fails it only fails for 10 percent of the users or one percent of the users depending on the project yeah and um and if it works for the, for this one percent i can move to 10 and then a hundred but now when you when you say uh, do it on the edge you mean uh decide on which, uh, let's say, which uh, um, version to choose, you should do that at the API gateway.
1: Yeah, so it's it's quite an overloaded recommendation, I guess, because it depends how folks have configured their services. So we often see people, when they're starting out in their microservice journey, they have quite a shallow stack. So often it is the monolith and a few other services, um, you know, next to the monolith. So then it's quite easy, at the edge to make a decision. You literally say, you know, canary, like you might have like service A and service A prime and you canary, you know, 1% of traffic to service A prime. So if you've got shallow systems, it's really quite simple to do. When you move to what a lot of folks now are calling deep systems. So when you've got sort of the, the microservice call chain is, you know, two, three, four other services. So the, the edge basically routes to the first service and that service then routes onto another service, onto another service, onto another service. On I always recommend folks keeping the chains as shallow as possible for so many reasons in terms of understandability and latency and so forth, but I've seen many things over the years. Then you can do a number of things. You can have literally different chains, so almost like two different chains and and you route to the different chains depending. But you can also do, as you mentioned, put something in the cookie at the edge and then the services look and do things depending on what the cookie value is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you can have an arbitrary deep stack, but you set the cookie at the edge because then for traceability, it's much easier to understand, oh, when this request came in, that person was eligible for, you know, canary testing, we set the flag, and therefore we know all the services downstream, or sorry, all the services upstream of that request, um, went through and processed that request with the canary flag. Hmm. When you start having multiple canary flags, um, which, you know, sometimes it is essential for certain systems, but for smaller systems or systems where you're just sort of starting out with a microservice pattern, I recommend keeping it as simple as possible. If you've got multiple canaries happening at multiple points of a deep stack, you get like quite deep, uh, quite sort of deep or wide, I suppose, branches. Does that make sense? So you the, the combinations of how a request can be handled uh, gets quite complicated. So I think if you keep like something simple at the edge, you at least didn't know this bit, this cookie was set at the edge and therefore you can much easier trace the flow of the cookie down the down the up the stack
0: mm, yeah yeah i think so makes sense yeah i never thought about uh, let's say um the the deep call chain because uh, we we kind of consider this an you know, not a uh, not so good solution to have s- so many s- so many services calling other services. So keep the let's say keep the tree small, no, no, not not small, not not deep, not, not having a deep tree, but you know, maximum I don't know, three hops, four hops, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I've seen one pattern um, being espoused by a number of vendors. I won't um, mention their name. And I think it's with good intentions. They're encouraging folks to do this. But it's the classic a layering approach. So like some of the I um, talk a lot about systems of engagement and systems of record. So systems of engagement are your kind of web apps or your funky cool stuff. And systems of record are the data stores and all these other things. And these vendors, they're kind of steeped in the traditional enterprise way of just adding another layer because that's you know it's kind of what you, what you did back in the day and they're advocating that you have kind of like these um application level services or APIs that then talk to process level APIs which then talk to system level APIs and then there's you know it's an arbitrarily deep stack and i understand why they're pitching that they're trying to say you know as a developer you just build up the appropriate layer you're working on it's a bit like the classic java thing of you used to always have like a dao a service layer and a view layer because you know that was the the done thing. In an ideal world, you could swap out the view layers, or you could call uh, multiple DAO layers, and um, from a you know from, from multiple views. I think that's the kind of mentality folks are bringing to this new microservice architecture. But I am 100% in agreement with what, what, what you said. I actually think keeping the call chain as small as possible ultimately makes it easier to understand end to end. I think the good intentions with these multiple, you know, abstraction layers of like application, process, and system, I get where they're coming from, but it, and it optimizes for a local understandability. But if you're looking for like the global of like how did my customer's request get solved, keeping that call stack short is mm. much easier.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's really the case, and it's faster. Talking about yes. being faster. Um, so one thing, I said service mesh is complex. Therefore, I was a bit scared. Uh, what about latency? I mean, introducing all those uh, sidecars, that introduces lots of latency. Is you know, is that really a big problem? Or would you say, well, sidecars have l- local calls and it's acceptable?
1: Yeah, I think it, it, it's always it's always good to look at your requirements, and I think is, there's a couple of angles here. One is the um, you know is it optimization is the um, premature optimization is the root of all evil kind of thing. I do see some folks getting really worried about potential latency introduced by a service mesh, uh, and then in reality, their system is like a standard e-commerce system, and then like a couple of extra microseconds or milliseconds doesn't make a big deal. And the benefits they might get from having a service mesh clearly outweigh the costs. But then I work with some financial companies, are so like we've got to have everything like down to the microsecond, and so that they minimise these extra hops. So it very much depends on on your requirements, and it's all about trade-offs. You know, you're going to get some benefits from service mesh, but there's clearly some costs, not only in terms of complexity of running the mesh, but in terms of of latency. But mm-hmm. there is some blog posts. Matt Klein, I think, has shared some blog posts. We've done some research internally in Datawire, for example. The 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 standard kind of uh, hops with um, Envoy are, are milliseconds, like single digit milliseconds. So for most use cases, it, it doesn't add a big problem. Particularly when you're, you know, like hopping over the internet, it's gonna cost you 10 milliseconds or whatever it is. But it's it's one of those things I always say to folks, um, if you do have your doubts do a small proof of concept because the, I've learned over the years, there's just too many variables in a typical system for me to predict what's right or wrong. Hmm. So the way you've got your applications configured, the way your hardware is configured, all these things. I say to folks, that if, I understand why you're worried because yes, it is another layer in the stack, but do a POC like with a few jumps and with a few, you know, um, proxies in the mix and just see what kind of performance you get at the P99, you know, at the worst sort of worst ish case scenario. And anecdotal, all the folks i've chatted to have come back and said it's not an issue we've got like five milliseconds of latency um but the benefits we've got by doing these things are you know clearly outweigh that cost
0: mm. yeah i you know in, in our case since we already have sidecasts just not yes. automatically injected by a service mesh there is already this uh, latency and yeah it's i find it interesting it seems to be easier to remove uh kubernetes pod limits cpu limits to get faster <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, that that was something i was really surprised that uh, that really uh, has that limits cpu limits have a very bad uh, um, consequence for for latency but yeah, I would also think that in a general case, latency is is not a is not a big issue. But yeah, it's something you have to keep in mind that if you introduce exactly. uh, proxies everywhere, it can be it can be a mess. Yeah. Um, how are those? Now I have all those proxies. Are they? Uh, how does it actually work under the hood? So if, if I install it, they automatically get injected onto a, onto a Kubernetes pod and um, this is then centrally managed by the
1: the data plane. Is that how it works? Yeah, pretty much. Then I mean, I would say to listeners, um, definitely check out the setup for your individual service meshes because they are subtly different, um, but fundamentally exactly what you said. So, um, console is you know a case that I've worked with quite a bit. You inject the um, the envoy. Um, Pod is just like like a one-liner in a Kubernetes deployment. Um, And you've obviously, if you installed console into your cluster, then when you deploy your app with this one-liner, console recognizes that and injects a pre-configured Envoy into your, uh, sorry, pre-configured Envoy container into your pod. And then it updates along the way. There's different mechanisms you can use to update it, but fundamentally there is a centralized Uh, control plane that then talks to envoy and synchronizes all the changes from the control plane into the individual pods which we we call the or the data plane
0: okay yeah yeah i can somehow remember my istio class (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah and but but how does so i i you know when, when we look at the functionalities of of the service mesh um how does this help with our application modernization. So, of course, it makes things easier if I already have a microservice architecture. Um, but that's, I think, the the own you you already need to have uh, the split, right? So, you if you uh, move from monolith to microservices, you need first a decent amount of microservices, and then you would introduce uh, the service mesh. Uh, in order to not develop all those things like security tracing, canary, resilience uh, from scratch. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, and one thing we've seen a pattern that's quite popular is if you're, say, moving to Kubernetes and and you, um, you know it's going to take a while to incrementally migrate, is using something like a service mesh, particularly a console, because it's the one that provides sort of And best connectivity across many platforms at the moment. Others are looking to do this for sure. Um, But you can use console as a way to do location transparency. So you can, providing you can install a console agent. on your existing app, the app can effectively be anywhere. So I've got some tutorials which I can share on my GitHub where I'm using Ambassador and Console and and Google Cloud Platform. and I'm using some Terraform to spin up a Kubernetes cluster with um, Ambassador and Console installed. And then I show you how to uh, route to a um, console-based service that is out of the Kubernetes cluster. It's running on a a classic VM in, in Google Cloud. And then you can move that service into Kubernetes and Console will Behind the scenes, change the routing. So no longer will it route to the external VM; it will route to the service in the um, in the Kubernetes cluster. And the beauty of doing that is your not only does your user never know and care about this, but even your API gateway doesn't, because your API gateway is talking to console to get the service discovery information, and mm-hmm. console is basically hiding giving location transparency from wherever these services are. And you can choose to always leave them running in a VM. No problem at all. But if you do want to migrate them, the, the service mesh there gives you some layer of abstraction.
0: Okay. So now we... Let's say we we decide that a service mesh is a good idea. Um, two things I still want to, to uh, discuss is... How to select the product and the other one is uh, what are migration tactics to a service mesh so maybe the first one uh, which products uh, which products maybe even exist Um, how do i select the right product i think that's within the last six months this you know, became a very interesting question because six months ago there I had the feeling Istio was really leading the pack and Linkerd was somewhere behind. Um, and everyone looking at Istio, but now I have the feeling the whole landscape changed. Linkerd is quite popular, uh, but also I think three, four other products came out: yeah. <laughs> uh, Traffic, uh, AWS App Mesh. Um, HashiCorp, so quite a lot of uh, products out there. But how can I, you know, what are the the things to look at uh, if if I have to choose? Obviously, requirements, but
1: um, yeah, how would yes, you? kind process? of a similar answer, I think, so into the API gateway, and that there's some standards requirements you can look for. But the the space is developing rapidly, so it's one of those things that you kind of constantly need to update. Uh, the big thing is pretty first up is do you want a Kubernetes only service mesh? So Linkerd, for example, is focusing only on the Kubernetes space. Uh, They've been clear about that upfront. They believe Kubernetes will rule the world. Um, So if you want to have a service mesh that talks outside of Kubernetes, Linkerd is not the choice for you. And then, but then another thing, probably very closely connected with that one, is the complexity of the mesh. Because Linkerd have made a bunch of assumptions around this, Kubernetes only. The installation experience and the usability of Linkerd is amazing. Yeah, compared to say other meshes that may be more powerful, they are more complex to or more complicated to understand. So I think yeah, Kubernetes only have to think about how much complexity you need or want. Uh, Istio is kind of taking a little bit of the classic Java EE vibe I think in that it does everything. <laughs> but you as a developer, you may not want everything. You know, this is something I struggled with in the classic Java EE days. You could literally do anything you want with a lot of these specs that were in Java EE, but me as an engineer, I actually wanted an opinionated way to do things. So I think Istio is, you know, is, is a market leader in terms of Google promoting it. It is very powerful and that you can do everything you pretty much want from a service mesh in it, but that comes with the baggage of, of complexity. So if you want a simple use case, um, I think Linkerd is a fantastic install experience. Uh, if you're just looking for TLS, I think console is a fantastic experience. I, I you know console, I install that as a Helm chart into my Kubernetes cluster, I sort of one-line injection into my pods, and I've got MTLS between all my services. So those are a bunch of things. The standard stuff to look through is, is the traffic management, is the observability, is the kind of reliability patterns. Although those are pretty standard across the um, across all the meshes, uh, and they're kind of like almost table stakes to some degrees. Like I mentioned with um, with API gateways, there is some things you just kind of expect from an API gateway. And then the next thing is have a look at the community. So there's a fantastic um, community around all the big meshes that like definitely um, Istio is a good community, a very Google driven, to be honest. That's one thing to bear in mind. Uh, LinkedIn, fantastic community, obviously driven by Buoyant, the, the, the company behind it, but they're great people. Consult, you know, HashiCorp, fantastic community in general. They really recognize the power of the community so all three of the big ones have got really good communities behind them the the more sort of new ones like uh, kong brought out kuma Trafic with mesh there is smaller communities behind them um and you're also with, with mesh for example you're betting on a non-commoditized tech and that the underlying hardware or the underlying sorry uh, code of mesh is a custom go proxy whereas most of the meshes are based on envoy with the exception of linkedin mm. so you've got to recognize recognize those things as well. But that's probably the core things I'd look at. I mean, it is a very new field uh, and there's obvious table stakes, but there's some more subtle requirements. I, I do think, as I mentioned a couple of times in this podcast, I definitely recommend folks try stuff out. Uh, I know it can seem like it might take a bit of time to do that, but this time up front will save you many days further down the line. Yeah, Try and spin them all up, spin up Console, spin up Linkerd, spin up Istio, have a play around with it, try and upgrade them in the cluster, try and add some services, try and take some services away. Just kind of do it like a one week kind of boot camp where you cram all the things you think you'll be doing over the next year into this POC and just get a feel for, is the documentation good? Does the service mesh behave as you expect? Is it easy to operate? Do my developers understand it? And often within an organization, anecdotally with my conversations, a winner emerges. The, the, each mesh, the, the big meshes, is quite opinionated, and typically those opinions will will map to your requirements or and your organizational style or not. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's tr- it's work.
0: <laughs> Trying yes, out it everything, is. Exactly. but yeah, I I think yeah, like with every every uh, um, decision which has application wide consequences yeah it the the work is worth to do it because otherwise you know it's everyone's suffering for a
1: long time yeah I don't think particularly with service meshes I, I don't think you can do a paper analysis. I don't even think you can do it with API gateways these days that's why I was kind of hesitant to sort of talk about requirements of API gateways It's very people want a tick box you know, they want to compare istio with um or they want to compare ambassador with Kong and the tick boxes don't really represent in my mind, a fair analysis. You have to play with these things just to understand it's new tech, it's a new world, you know, your requirements, you're bringing with you baggage and requirements and how that translates to these new technologies. I think exactly what you said, Sven. You you know, it does, it is work, but I think it's work that is really valuable in the bigger scheme of things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I also tend to be, let's say, a checkbox guy. Uh, But yeah, the the thing is, if you, Especially if it's something new, right? So a service mesh, there are all those products. You have no clue how to, you know, what to choose, what criteria, and then you just look at the, the, you know, the, the features. Um, but yeah, without trying it out, making a prototype, uh, you know, having even certain teams deploying on it and play around with it. You know, not only one or two people playing around with it, but also you know a, a broader space. Yeah, you, you have to do that yeah but but let's assume you you made a decision um how do i roll out um a service mesh
1: yeah i talked about this a little bit in my um SACON talk in berlin and the pattern i like is called balkanization where you basically take a segment of your network deploy a service mesh you know, in a kind of like a smaller area. And if it's successful, then you gradually roll these things out. There is a few caveats on that. For example, Istio, I believe you have to do a cluster-wide install. So even if you've got one cluster and many namespaces, I don't think you can do like a, a sort of you install it just the one namespace that was when i last checked so i would encourage listeners to double check that fact console i've done a whole bunch of work like um, with, with nick jackson buddy of mine who's talked about how you kind of segment the network and how you roll out things like console i know Linkerd, you've got this um notion as well where they've talked about incrementally rolling out um LinkedIn. you they've got like a, a permissive mode with the tls connections so you can kind of gradually, you put TLS everywhere, but for the services that have not got a Linkerd connected into them, you can have a permissive mode where it drops back to um, basic um, uh, HTTP, unsecured HTTP communication. Then as you add more Linkerd, you can kind of upgrade as you go along. So definitely look at how the technologies you're choosing um support these rollouts Uh, i definitely think be wary of sort of the monolithic installs or the monolithic upgrades because as we've said a few times the service mesh is pretty much on the critical path of all your services so if you do a monolithic install of a service mesh and it breaks probably your whole application will go down so definitely be be a bit wary of, of that kind of thing there's been some great stories i think monzo talked about some of their um journeys, some of their experiences with um, a service mesh when it went a bit, a bit wrong. Um, yeah, but I think basically, like many things in software development, many things in life to be honest, start small, get that feedback and then iterate.
0: Yeah, I think with service meshes, um, you know, people say, well, the, the whole power of a service mesh is that it helps you application-wide, making things easier. So don't do it incrementally. But I think, you know, th- there, is a, there is a true point in it. But I also think, yeah, it's new technology. If if something goes wrong, the whole application goes wrong. Yes, we understand that, um, you know, the, let's say the full power only comes when it's rolled out across the, f- the, the whole application. But, yeah, starting small, yeah, that's really... Uh,
1: that to your point swen er, i yeah. think you mentioned earlier like about esbs i remember when i first started playing with esbs like 15 i guess years ago the the vendors had the same pitch then they were like oh just go all in on this esb you know like basically like it's the only way to do communication in your in your cluster in your data center makes it so much easier and like those those projects used to take a year or two to, to roll out and then there was always a lot of pain when you went live yeah so so i think like we in some ways are we haven't changed our mindset on these things, but I do definitely recommend like starting small. Otherwise, you'll it will take you many months to actually do something, to roll out something. And then the pain of your learning will be crazy when it goes into production, if it's a system-wide thing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't want to have this pain. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think it's interesting that you say, uh, you know... The latest info is that Istio needs to be installed uh, uh, cluster-wise, cluster-wide, because I think it's a good pattern to, you know, if you have Kubernetes, to start with one small namespace, for example, Mm -hmm. and then add another one and add another one. So I really wonder, I will look it up. Uh, I'm really curious if. If that's still the case for Istio, because I, you know, I thought they move into the direction that it's, you know, easier to install and um, that you do not have to install everything at once, but you can do, you know, it's more decomposed. You can you can install a few functionalities, so to speak.
1: Yes, you might be right, Sven. To be honest, I haven't used Istia for a couple of months now. And in the service mesh world, that's a long time. Yeah, so <laughs> um, so I, I, I something I probably I'd, I'd like a little bit of geeking out over the Christmas holidays. I will play around with some of these meshes. Like, I just, you know, I love playing with technology in general. But I find I have to play with the tech every couple of months because it all changes so much.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, yeah, I have the feeling, you know, back in the days where... Do I choose Docker Swarm, Mesosphere, or Kubernetes? With service meshes, it feels to be the, the same situation that things can change overnight, and yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever you bet on, it will be wrong tomorrow. <laughs> uh, the nature of the game, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so all my my questions um, are answered. Uh, is there anything in particular? Um, I haven't asked, but you think it's uh, important uh, mentioning?
1: I don't think so, Sven. I mean, I'm a a keen to give a plug to the stuff I'm doing at DataWire. Like, I thoroughly encourage folks to jump in our Slack or, or read our articles. We're trying to share as much th- of the thinking you and I have discussed today publicly. So we're doing blog posts. We're in Slack chatting around these things. Because I think hopefully something that's come through to the listeners is this API gateway space service mesh space it's pretty new like the sort of the cloud native versions of these things are pretty new and we're all learning together so obviously you know i've got my vendor hat on today but we're trying to learn as much as we can for the community as much as we can from customers i know all the other service mesh and all the other api vendors are doing the same so having some kind of where some kind of um discussion i think is really important and regardless of kind of you know where we um where we sort of hang our hats, it's really important if we can share all this knowledge, share our learnings, and um, give feedback. Um, I see this happening a lot, for example, even in the LinkedIn Slack and the Kubernetes Slack, I see a lot of interesting conversation, but I'm really keen to encourage folks, particularly the folks that are arriving to this space now um, that are quite new. So I, I was at KubeCon recently, and a lot of folks I was chatting to at KubeCon are actually new to the whole cloud space they were at kubecon to learn about kubernetes to learn about service mesh and these things and their input is really valuable because yeah they don't know about all the latest buzzwords that probably most of us who've been in the space for a couple of years know they don't know what a pod is they don't want to know what a mesh is or a proxy or a service mm. mesh proxy is. but their input is really valuable because it helps us all understand how to map the journey from people who are solving real-world business problems and have just been too busy up until now to look at cloud, but now they're arriving, we all need to understand how can we help them on this journey towards cloud-native systems. So I would thoroughly encourage people to get involved in the conversation. That's kind of my takeaway of that, that one.
0: Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Daniel, and uh, talk to you soon. Sounds good, till then. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye.